0: Hi, this is uh, Dr. Peter Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, and today I have the great honor and pleasure of interviewing for this podcast Dr. Susanna Banerjee, Susie Banerjee, from the Royal Marsden uh, NHS Foundation Trust and Institute of Cancer Research in uh, London in the UK. And the reason for this podcast is obviously the uh, recent publication of the maintenance Olaparib for patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer and a BLCA mutation, the SOLO1 GOG3004, the five-year follow-up of a randomized double-blind placebo control phase three trial. So Susie, thank you so much for uh, joining us. Thank you for your time um, and always being uh, so wonderful in accepting our, our invitation.
1: Thank you for inviting me.
0: So, uh, Susie, uh, we wanted to get started by first, if you can just discuss as to um, what was the, the reason for performing this study, and wonder if you could just expand on the results of a Solo 1 GOG 3004 study.
1: Well, pleasure. So, we know um, that thanks to the clinical studies and going from the preclinical through to the clinical studies in recurrent ovarian cancer, that maintenance PARP inhibitors. Have transformed the treatment of platinum-sensitive relapsed ovarian cancer, and the particular benefit's been observed in women with a BRCA mutation. So based on this benefit in platinum-sensitive recurrent disease, the obvious question is, can clinical outcomes um, be improved, bringing treatment earlier on in the disease pathway for women with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer? Is there an opportunity to improve outcomes, to improve survival um, in the first line setting? So this was the rationale um, for SOLO-1. um, And SOLO-1 was a landmark um, trial, the first phase three study to assess a PARP inhibitor as a maintenance treatment in newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer. Um, So to summarize, patients received maintenance olaparib um, or placebo um, having had um, surgery, and then chemotherapy had a response to chemotherapy. Uh, and the treatment duration uh, was capped at two years for patients who had a complete response or no evidence of disease. So the, the headline data is that the primary analysis, SOLO1, showed that maintenance of laparib um, uh, led to a significant progression-free survival benefit in patients with newly diagnosed advanced ovarian cancer and a BRCA mutation. So the reduction um, uh, in terms of hazard ratio, the hazard ratio is 0.7, sorry, 0.3, with a 70% reduction um, in the progression of disease. And so we hadn't seen this kind of results uh, in ovarian cancer. And it was amazing to be uh, an author and part of the audience at the ESMO presidential (laughs) session when when this was um, released in 2018. Now, what we've shown in the five-year follow-up, which I presented at ESMO in 2021, uh, in 2020 and published in Lancet Oncology in 2021, was that after five years of follow-up, the median PFS was more than four and a half years with laparib compared with around a year, so 13.8 months in the placebo arm. So a difference of three and a half years um, in favour of Olaparib treatment. Um, and these results also suggest that two years of a maintenance PARP inhibitor, maintenance alaparib, can lead to long-term remission. And I really hope that raises the, the hope, the potential for cure, curing more women.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I mean, you you and your team are really impacting work, and now you've changed practice. So that's, uh, that's really, really encouraging uh, for patients with uh, ovarian cancer. And um, I wanted to ask you next if you can... Um, highlight and specify the, the uh, inclusion criteria of SOLO1, who are the ideal patients that this applies to?
1: Sure, I think the first thing, is, you know, as you've highlighted, this is a team effort. Um, and so, you know, thanks to the investigators, the clinical trials teams, patients, and the families. Now, the inclusion criteria um, was stage three or stage four, newly diagnosed, high-grade serous um, or endometrioid um, ovarian carcinoma, um, so we say ovarian carcinoma, as you know, primary paritoneal fallopian tube as well, mm-hmm. uh, and patients needed to have um, a germline or somatic BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutation. Um, patients needed to have had a, a response, either complete response or partial response to first-line platinum-based chemotherapy, so that's carboplatin and paclitaxel mm-hmm. essentially, and had undergone attempted cytoreductive surgery. Um, or biopsy if if stage four disease. Um, So the primary um, objective um, was um, progression-free survival by investigator assessment, And this was defined at the time from from randomization um, until disease progression or death.
0: Fantastic. So I I wanted to um, now go into the the findings of this particular uh, study if you can discuss some of the outcomes in in patients who had an initial complete response. In addition, speak a little bit about those who have a higher clinical risk and and those with lower clinical risk.
1: Sure, so at the primary analysis, uh, which um, Kathleen Moore presented in 2018, um, the risk, the hazard ratio, as I said, was 0.3, the 70% reduction um, in disease progression or death. So the five-year follow-up is the longest follow-up to date um, of the date of the publication um, of a PARP inhibitor in the first-line setting, and that showed the median PFS was 56 months um, with Olaparib versus 13.8 months of placebo. So this is in BRCA-mutated, newly diagnosed ovarian cancer. Now, what's really important in terms of looking at um, important clinical groups Um, we see that the benefit was consistent between patients who had either complete response or partial response following first-line platinum-based chemotherapy. So the hazard ratios were 0.34 and and 0.31, respectively. Um, So uh, we know that, um, as you highlighted, um, some patients may be deemed at higher risk than others. Mm -hmm. My personal viewpoint is that all women with advanced ovarian cancer are at high risk, sadly, of relapse. Um, um, but those patients that might may, may have higher risk, for example, um, stage four disease or stage three disease um, with residual disease uh, following primary debulking surgery or had undergone um, interval cytoreductive surgery. So for those patients which are deemed higher risk, um, at five years, the median um, PFS in the um, laparob was um, just over 40 months in the placebo arm around 11 months, the hazard ratio is 0.34. So those lower risk patients, stage three, no residual disease, those patients that we think are going to do really well following primary debulking surgery. Five years follow up, the median PFS in the elaprobe arm wasn't reached and the placebo arm was 21, uh, 21.9 months, hazard ratio is 0.38. So we see a consistent effect uh, across higher and lower risk groups, um, highlighting that in practice, um, all patients um, with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer and a BRCA mutation um, uh, having responded to chemotherapy should be offered a first line maintenance PARP inhibitor.
0: Yeah. And, and uh, that brings me to <clears throat> the next question with regards to perhaps your discussion with those patients as it pertains to complete response versus a partial response. And, you know, what percentage? Of of, of patients of SOLO1 had those. And, and what do you tell patients when you say, well, I'm not that patient that had a complete response. I just had a partial response. Do I still have the same benefit?
1: Yeah, so so around um, three quarters um, of, of women within SOLO1 had a, a, a complete response to first-line platinum-based therapy and around a quarter and 25% went in with a partial response. And the good news is that both groups um, uh, derived meaningful benefits clinically and um, statistically uh, with with the addition of olaparib versus placebo. Um, So the hazard ratios were were 0.34 and 0.31 respectively. So what I tell patients is that um, laparib will help and delay the time before cancer returns. And for patients that have a partial response and disease still visible on a scan, we also must remember that this has continued anti-cancer properties in terms of a response. And those patients can get further shrinkage um, with Olaparib compared to placebo.
0: Great, right. and, and what, one of the other questions that came up also in, in some of the discussions we have with our fellows in the journal was, Well, the importance of the impact of the surgeon uh, with regards to what is the outcome if the surgeon does an optimal R0 cytoreduction upfront versus a suboptimal, does olaparib compensate for those uh, later on?
1: So so you raise a really interesting question, an important question. Surgery is critical. I appreciate I'm a medical oncologist, but surgery is critical in, in improving outcomes for women with this disease. Um, And in solo one, um, around 20% had residual disease following surgery. Mm -hmm. Um, And when uh, the analysis was performed to look at outcomes according to surgical outcome. So for example, those that had um, upfront surgery and had residual disease, um, the hazard ratio was was almost 0.3, 0.29. And for those with no residual disease, the hazard ratio was 0.33. So it shows that if it's residual disease or no residual disease and you have upfront surgery, there is benefit in terms of taking a maintenance PARP inhibitor. Um, So I I think my main message is that in patients with or without residual disease, whether they have interval cytoreductive surgery or upfront surgery, Mm -hmm. um, I personally don't think it replaces good surgery um, but it's, it's also about the, the biology of the disease. And, and it may well be that it's not possible um, to operate up front or indeed remove all the disease, um, but it's reassuring that in both groups that maintenance salaparib improves outcomes.
0: Yeah, and definitely very encouraging to hear that as well. <clears throat> now, one of the other questions that, and I've had this question posed to me, <clears throat> excuse me, from some of my patients is, Um, At the completion of two years, many patients are tolerating the elaborate very well. Um, They don't have a recurrence. So the patients will say, well, why can't I just keep taking this forever? Um, And I noticed that in, I believe in the solo one, 10% of patients in the elaborate group continued beyond two years. So how do you have that conversation with your patients at the end of two years when they say, I want to keep taking it?
1: And what's great, you know, as elaparib um, was approved, um, you know, following um, the the primary analysis, we are at that stage where we're seeing patients in practice outside of clinical trials reaching that two year point um, without disease. And 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 I, I like you, have those questions posed to me from patients and families. Um, you're right, ten percent of of women in solo one, um, or ten percent of the elaparib patients continued study. Treatment beyond two years, uh, it was around 2% in the placebo arm. And this was as per protocol. So if a patient had evidence of disease at two years on the scan, then they could continue um, um, maintenance salaparib. Um, but what I say to my patients is that looking at five years, at the overall populations, that includes obviously those patients that, you know, the majority that, that stopped at two years. Um, so if I see a patient that um, has no disease on a scan. So I do do a scan at that point at the end of planned maintenance treatment to check that. Um, I reiterate the fact that almost half of patients on the lepro balm um, uh, remained progression-free um, uh, um, despite most of them having stopped the treatment three years earlier as per protocol. And in the placebo arm, it was only 21%. So, so I think this data is really encouraging and helps Consultations looking at longer-term follow-ups, seeing that that benefit from the two years of laparib is maintained, at, you know, and and those separations of those Ka- Kaplan-Meyer curves, you know, remain apart uh, with longer-term follow-ups. So that's how I hope I reassure um, patients and the team.
0: Great, and and I want to follow up on something that you just said with regards to imaging, and that's one something that you know even amongst ourselves here, my colleagues, are like. How often do you get imaging when you have maintenance uh, Olaparib? I get three months, oh, I get six months. So oh, I don't do that just once a year. So what is your recommendation for imaging during those two years when the patient is on Olaparib? And then also the patients will ask, when do I get imaging after I come off Olaparib again?
1: So so in SOLO1, and obviously it's in the trial setting, we know that in trial setting, understandably scans are more frequent. Um, than in clinical practice um, often. So in solo one, the tumor assessments were every um, 12 weeks for three years and then every 24 weeks. Um, and so in terms of practice, and I know practice varies even within the same country, even within the same city. Um, or the and same think,
0: office. <laughs> yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. So, um, so, so I think this is where... Um, the global community, you know, can share experience too, and seeing really through, through audits and evaluating the service about actually those that are doing more frequent imaging, does that actually change management or those that perhaps don't do so frequent imaging or, or visits, you know, what the impact is. Um, so personally, um, I, uh, well, our team see patients every, every, every three months. Uh, like we would do if they weren't on maintenance therapy, so I try and keep it um, as would have been the case um, uh, 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 in terms of monitoring, uh, irrespective of the PARP inhibitors, but in terms of monitoring for CA125 in clinical review. Um, and um, if the patient does, is not to CA125 secretor, um, then, then I, do, I add imaging to that, uh, and that would generally be on a six-monthly basis. Um, so I also would scan at the end of maintenance therapy. I also do a scan at the end of chemotherapy so I know where we're at. Um, and it also helps guide um, as we talked about earlier, the, the you know whether we're um, likely to stop at two years or not and I want to if somebody's got a partial response and disease on the scan, I want to have a look at that and see how that um, evolves over time. Um, and I would use CT scans. Yeah.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about now side effects. And and it's interesting because I've actually had patients where I talk to them about the benefits of the intervention and they're somewhat hesitant because of potential side effects that they have read about. So I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about what were the most common side effects in the study and also um, wondering if did any patient develop acute myeloid leukemia?
1: So the first thing is that um, when we look at the side effects um, uh, in, in SOLO-1, so with elaparib, it's very similar to what we see in recurrent disease in terms of um, nausea, fatigue, for example, and myelosuppression. Um, so the most common side effects um, in, in, in the elaparib group were, were nausea, um, uh, most of these were, were low-grade, a like grade one or two, so 77% had nausea, fatigue was around 60%. Um, more Most adverse events, um, which were mild to moderate, um, um, by that I mean grade three, three or more, mm-hmm. most common adverse event there would be the anemia in 22% of patients. Um, 9% of, of women on laparib experienced grade three or more neutropenia, um, but there weren't any other sort of significant side effects, grade three or more um, in more than 5% of patients. Um, so overall, twenty-one um, percent of patients on have experienced a serious adverse event, and twelve percent actually in the placebo arm. Again, the most common um, side effect was anemia, um, and we can talk if we have the opportunity about you know, how to support patients through that. Um, so, in terms of um, acute myeloid leukemia, myelodysplastic syndrome, for me, I think, and for many, I think that's the most. Um, serious, sinister side effect, as we know that can be fatal in itself. Um, and whether that's a, directly related to a PARP inhibitor, whether that's related to other factors as well, for example, presence um, of a BRCA mutation, a number of lines of therapy, these are all Im- important things to note and, and, and learn as a community. What was really reassuring in SOLO1 um, is, is that um, at the primary analysis um, uh, it was around one percent of patients developed uh, acute myeloid leukemia. Um, no patients in the placebo arm, and with active follow up in the five year follow up within Solo One, um, there was no additional MDS or AML. So it was around one and a half percent. You know, we were certainly following up and looking for that. So that is reassuring with longer term follow up. And we know in recurrent ovarian cancer the maintenance studies, as we've seen the long-term outcomes from SOLO2, and also with NOVA, we see that the rates of MDS AML are somewhat higher, and in particular in the, in the BRCA-mutated group. Um, and uh, I think that's, that's an interesting, and we need to see the longer-term follow-up in the first line, um, and it's even more of a reason, in my view, to, 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 to treat with PARP inhibitors in the first-line setting.
0: Yeah, so obviously added value from having this long-term follow-up uh, for, for these uh, patients and their counseling. So uh, one of the other questions that often comes up, uh, particularly for patients who start developing some of these side effects somewhat immediately after they start taking the part, is, well, let's start lowering the dose. And, um, and you know, a question that has come up with, you know, with our pharmacist also in clinic is, how low can you go and still get the same benefit? And how do we minimize possibly discontinuation of the PARP?
1: So we we need to go um, initially um, uh, with, with trial evidence, and, and as we um, put these protocols together, you know, based on first phase one and then phase two and then phase three studies, that's really guided our management um, in terms of dose modifications for PARP inhibitors. Um, so in solo one. Um, initially, dose interruptions, um, along with supportive treatment, depending on what the toxicity is, for example, antiemetics, um, uh, investigation for why a patient might be anemic, check iron levels, B12, folate, replace as necessary, um, and then uh, considering dose reductions if toxicity has reoccurred following a dose interruption. Um, so the initial dose reduction, the actual dose um, from 300 milligrams twice a day is 250. And that's the first step. And the next step is 200 milligrams twice a day. Um, And within the studies, this can't be re-escalated. But then we need to talk about also our experience in practice and and learnings. In terms of a question about evidence, like how low can you go and how does that um, impact on efficacy? um, That's where I think hopefully more even smaller studies, academic studies um, uh, can look into this and also real world experience. Um, The effect of dose reductions, um, I don't believe it's been analyzed in SOLO1, but looking at modeling studies across the Olaparib program, um, 300 milligrams twice a day was um, statistically superior to 200 milligrams, for example, twice a day, although the difference was was, was small. Um, But um, but really, we need real-world practice as well to look at this. Um, So so I, I try my best to reassure patients, if they need a dose reduction, um, it, it's, it's because of toxicity and mm-hmm. I'd rather maintain dose intensity, if you like, um, rather than just stopping and discontinuing altogether. Um, and that's where the monitoring of blood counts initially um, supportive measures that I've mentioned, including exercise for fatigue, mm-hmm. um, causes of anemia, antiemetics. In solo one, the discontinuation rate was 12 was percent or so um, due to adverse events. Um, but what we see is that with, with uh, you know that that's substantially less than the the number that needed dose interruptions or reductions, so, so I feel that for the majority of patients this can be managed and managed well. We need to um, educate the oncology community as well as our patients um, about um, uh, what toxicities to look out for and what how we actually can manage these best rather than discontinuation.
0: Yeah, very, very well said. Uh, and, and one last question uh, regarding this continuation in terms of just like as we have these discussions with patients, um, what percentage of patients were able to complete their trial intervention at two years on the study? I don't know if you have that data with you.
1: Okay, so um, so following two years, so, so it, was, it was around 50%, so 47% patients in the laparib um, group um, and in the 20s, 27% in the placebo group um, completed their trial intervention at two years, as per the study protocol. So, um, and of course, some patients may have discontinued, um, obviously due to disease progression, um, you know, as well as due to um, adverse events. But, but roughly, um, roughly half the patients managed to complete their trial intervention at two years, as per study protocol.
0: Great. Uh, this next question comes from one of our fellows, in, and she asks. Um, Do you have information as to whether outcomes are different when considering BRCA1 versus BRCA2? uh, Do you think that we can extrapolate the same benefits in patients who are BRCA negative? Uh, And also one last question on that is, does it matter if the mutations are germline versus somatic to see these benefits?
1: Okay, I'll try and take those um, step by step. (laughs) So so we know from from SOLO-1, so I'll talk about what we know from SOLO-1 and and bearing in mind when this trial um, was open to recruitment. So uh, we know that maintenance laparib provided um, uh, the benefit that we see in patients with with BRCA1 or BRCA2 mutations. So um, the the benefit is seen in both BRCA1 and BRCA2, the hazard ratio was 0.42 and 0.25 respectively. Um, So the median PFS, as I've just said, with that hazard ratio, um, appears to be longer um, with with a BRCA2 mutation. But the size of this subgroup was relatively small. That may have impacted on the observations. And the main take home message is that there was benefit in both groups. Um, And I think with more of the studies across PARP inhibitors, um, real world as well, you know, we, we can look at this further. In terms of the question about somatic or germline, well, well within SOLO-1, only two, two patients, I think, had a somatic BRCA mutation. Um, but if we look at studies in relapsed ovarian cancer um, with maintenance therapy, and platinum-sensitive disease, we know that Olaproev um, had similar efficacy, whether the mutation was germline or somatic. Um, in terms of the wild-type question, so 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 no, no BRCA mutation, well, we need further studies to assess that in terms of laparib, as SOLO1 was exclusively in women with BRCA mutations. Um, and uh, there's the ongoing um, uh, randomized study, phase three study called uh, Monoola study, which is looking to address that question. Uh, but we have other studies, as you know, with PARP inhibitors in a broader population, irrespective of BRCA mutation um, in the first line setting. So, for example, in pala 1, that was the um, addition of a to bevacizumab compared to placebo with bevacizumab as standard of care. Um, the, um, uh, the, the risk um, of disease progression or death was reduced by 67% um, in those patients that were HRD uh, uh, positive, um, so either having a BRCA mutation or genomic instability. Um, so this does show that there is a role for PARP inhibitors beyond BRCA mutated in the PALA-1 study with bevacizumab and also the PRIMA study with niraparib, uh, which was an all comers, and we know um, that um, there the risk of disease and or death was reduced by 38% versus placebo, irrespective of BRCA or HRD, but the greatest benefit, again, observed in patients with BRCA mutations, those that are HRD um, positive. So taken together, I I feel that um, Solo One, Prima, Paola One tells us um, that BRCA mutation testing is is, is essential. Uh, BRCA mutation testing and HRD testing can help guide treatment decisions um, and and, um, opens the doors to to options in the first line setting.
0: Great. Uh, One of the other questions from our fellow is, uh, when do we have data on overall survival for Solo One? And what did that show?
1: <laughs> Are you trying to ask me something in advance before we <laughs> need, need to go to the congresses? So, um, That's right. can invite me back or, or, or my colleague <laughs> to present that. So, um, the overall survival data is currently immature for Solo One. Yes. Um, uh, the overall survival analysis pre specified in the protocol is that it will take place at 60% data maturity. So, we must be. If I presented the five-year follow-up in 2020, um, you know we're at seven years or so. Um, so you know, I hope I hope not too much longer. Um, but, um, but 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 uh, you know, re- really important question. Uh, we want to see an overall survival benefit. We want to cure more patients. Uh, we also have to recognise though um, the difficulties or the challenges in overall survival. Um, being shown to be improved in clinical trials, all of us, yourself, myself, mm-hmm. patient is PARP naive, we're going to want to give a patient a PARP inhibitor at relapse, um, in the relapse setting. So, um, uh, you know, the number of patients uh, affecting subsequent therapies to PARP needs to be taken into consideration with overall survival too.
0: That's great. Uh, I wanna ask you one last question from uh, one of our fellows, and then uh, just a, a, a few additional questions before uh, we let you go. It's always so, so so exciting and so great to, to speak with you. Uh, but the, one of the last questions from the fellow is, uh, what is the impact of, of maintenance Olaparib on time to second disease progression? And in case of recurrence and response, would you suggest Olaparib again uh, in these patients?
1: Sure. So um, in solo one, maintenance of reduced the risk um, of second disease progression um, by just over 50% compared to placebo. Um, so at five years, the median PFS2 wasn't reaching the laparib arm and the placebo arm was around 42 months. Um, 64% of, of women on laparib were free from second progression um, compared to 41%. Um, and, and we know that more than a quarter received a PARP inhibitor as, as part of second-line therapy. So in answer to your question, um, you sneak in two questions in the, in the same question. <laughs> would you enroll these patients again in another PARP inhibitor trial? Um, so um, obviously those patients that that were that in solo one, they may have got placebo. I certainly would want to access a PARP inhibitor. In terms of re-challenge um, in patients that have already had a PARP inhibitor, well, that that was the, 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 the point or the, the looking into uh, this within the OREO trial, which is the first phase three study, which really looked at retreatment um, with a PARP inhibitor as maintenance therapy. And it showed that maintenance um, Olaparib provided a statistically significant um, improvement in PFS um, um, compared with placebo uh, in platinum-sensitive relapse. Um, so the hazard ratio is around 0.57 for BRCA-mutated ovarian cancer. The median PFS, we look at that in terms of median PFS time, it was 4.3 versus 2.8 months. So how clinically meaningful that improvement is, is 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 debatable. It has been debated. But I would say this trial is a positive signal. It indicates that some patients may benefit from rechallenge, and we need to improve, identify those better, and improve further um, perhaps combination treatments of PARP inhibitors.
0: And Susie, so one, one question that has come up, and uh, and particularly when when we've uh, obviously uh, seen the subject uh, in discussion and conferences in um, certain regions of the world, like Latin America, um, and and other low and middle income countries, uh, you know, certainly the the their question is, well, Olaparibs are not approved by our national agencies, and. Um, could there be potentially or has there been any movement from like how we similarly have had previously an NCI clinical announcement saying Olaparib should be part of the upfront ovarian cancer setting? Um, what can you speak to that for our international community in low and middle income countries?
1: Well, well, I'll say it. I, 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 I completely feel strongly that um, a maintenance PARP inhibitor um, should be offered um, to, to all women with, with BRCA-mutated ovarian cancer in this setting, in the first-line setting. Um, and, and the reasons for that are, are the um, clinical improvements we've seen in the, in the endpoints so far um, uh, in the follow-up that I've mentioned. Also, we need to remember that not all patients are going to relapse in a platinum-sensitive timeframe and therefore wouldn't access a PARP inhibitor at later lines. And not all patients respond to platinum, even though they relapse in a platinum sensitive timeframe. So then again, wouldn't access a PARP inhibitor. So in terms of international efforts, ASCO, ESMO, um, nation, most national gui- guidelines, um, uh, I believe state what I've just said that that you know certainly we should be considering that. So I think as an international community, it's important that we that um, you know it's a priority for for um, public policy you know for us to to make sure um, that that message is 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 taken uh, globally.
0: Yeah, and Susie, one last question. Many of our um, listeners, our patients. Um, if you were speaking to our, our patient audience and they said, um, I want to hear from the expert, why is it important to use Olaparib in the maintenance setting for, for me as a patient with ovarian cancer? What would you say to them?
1: I would say that, that um, we've done really well. You've had excellent surgery, excellent chemotherapy. You've got this far. We now know that by taking these tablets of targeted therapies, PARP inhibitors, have transformed the lives of many women um, who have a BRCA mutation um, and had a diagnosis of ovarian cancer. We want to delay the time before cancer comes back. We want to delay the time to next chemotherapy. We want to extend survival. And this is the best chance um, by taking these treatments at this stage. Of course, we worry. We all worry about side effects. We have a lot of experience of these side effects. We know how to manage these best uh, and we will support you through the treatment. We may need to hold the dose for a while, interrupt. We may need to reduce the dose, um, but we'll do our best efforts working together um, to keep you on the PARP inhibitors um, for the duration of time needed, which is two years.
0: Susanna Banerjee, Susie Banerjee, thank you so, so much. Always so impressive uh, and, and uh, really always learned so much from speaking with you. Thank you again for all of your work, your contributions to gynecologic oncology on all of your really outstanding and practice changing publications. So I really appreciate your, your time and your kind acceptance of our invitation.
1: Thank you very much. Uh, I hope I get invited again one day.
0: Oh, absolutely. You will. <laughs> Thank you.